This is the Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 10th chapter. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter first, say, peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Whoever listens to you listens to me, and whoever rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. If healing stories in the Bible were a category on family feud, survey says that the story of Naaman is probably not on that list. It's not one that we really know about. We don't hear it very often in our Bible readings in church, which is really a shame because this is such a fascinating story. There's so much going on here. So it was a bit of a long reading, so let's recap just a little bit. So Naaman is an army commander. He's a top-ranking military official in his country. He has loads of power and money and influence, and he's a really important and well-respected person, except for one tiny thing. Did you catch it? He has leprosy. Some kind of vague, probably painful skin condition that would have, among other things, made him ritually unclean in his context. And the thing about disease back then is that other people thought that the person with the disease somehow must have done something so morally wrong and evil to make God angry, and so was being punished for that thing with this disease. 
So on top of all of that, Naaman lives with this skin condition. And one of Naaman's household slaves one day happens to mention uh, to, we'll call her Mrs. Naaman, she doesn't really have a name in the text, uh, but that there's this prophet in her hometown, back where she came from in Israel, who has the power to cure her husband. And so word gets back to Naaman. Naaman consults with his people, and off he goes with the blessing of his king, with loads of silver and gold and expensive clothes and probably all sorts of other kinds of expensive gifts with the intention of probably being able to bribe his way to exert his influence into a grand, miraculous, healing miracle. Which brings us to Elisha. Remember, remember him from last week? He's the guy who was practically running after Elijah, his predecessor, because he was terrified of being left on his own to be a prophet. Well, it turns out Elisha was actually doing pretty well on his own, doing miracles left and right after Elijah left him. And so what's one more? Let's cure Naaman. But I like to imagine Elisha thinking to himself, let's have a little fun with this one. This big, important guest, practically the second in command in the kingdom of Aram, Next to him, I'm nothing. And my messenger, well, if I'm nothing next to this big important guy, my messenger is like less than nothing. So I'm going to send him out to greet this big important military official. He'll love that, I'm sure. And let's have him go take a bath in the Jordan River. Now, I don't know my Wisconsin geography well enough yet, uh, but I mean, I'm imagining like, I don't know, Sherry, like the lakes of Oconomowoc are pretty pristine and beautiful, uh, but like, let's say like the Milwaukee River. Would you want to take a bath in the Milwaukee River or the Chicago River, right? I mean, I know that really well. That's not even deemed safe for like human contact. So imagine that. So you can imagine Naaman's response, the Jordan River, you must be joking. Naaman is insulted. That muddy little stream. I could have stayed home and bathed in the biggest, bluest, most sparkling and pristine and refreshing rivers of my home country in Damascus. And you want me to go there? Well, after his servants talked him down a little bit, they convince him to give it a shot. All right, why not? So Naaman goes to the Jordan River, he bathes, just as Elisha commanded, and wouldn't you know it, he's cured, just like Elisha said. Now that's an amazing story. There's a lot going on in that story, but I think that it has almost nothing to do with the healing miracle itself. This is a story about how God subverts our expectations and shows up in unexpected ways. In the first place, Naaman himself had very clear expectations about how his healing would happen. 
He had money and power and probably like platinum tier insurance on the marketplace and he was going to get the best treatment possible. He was going to go to the best person possible. He was going to go to the grand rivers of Damascus, get healed by the great prophet of Israel. He had ideas about how this would work. Instead, he gets the dingy Jordan River and the prophet's doorman. And it even took Naaman's servants to convince him not to bail on this plan. And before that, it took his wife's slave girl to really set this all in motion and convince him to go in the first place. Even the king of Israel, Naaman's first stop before getting to Elisha's house, couldn't quite wrap his head around what was going on and was convinced that this must be some sort of a political trap. In this story, those who should get it, the powerful, the military officials, the king, those who should get it don't. And those who shouldn't get it do. That seems to be a bit of a biblical theme. Even Naaman himself, in the context of Israel, is an outsider. He's a foreign general who comes to an enemy nation to be healed by one of their prophets instead of someone in his own country. And in this healing process, the text tells us that his skin is restored and becomes like that of a young boy, or na'ar in Hebrew, which can also mean servant. And so this great second in command becomes like a servant, his polar opposites on the social ladder. Reversals abound in this story, and expectations are turned upside down at every turn because God's activity knows no bounds in this story. Not the bounds of the national borders between Syria and Israel, or social class, or military rank, or religion. Instead, God's grace is extravagant enough to overflow to all people. This is a story about the widening of community and who gets to be included. We need to hear Naaman's story and the message that it reminds us of because we know that we need community. We can't do everything all by ourselves. That's the whole point of Jesus' instructions to his disciples. He sends out 70 people, probably more, but 70 is a convenient number. And he sends them out in pairs of two without money or luggage or food or even shoes in order that they might rely on the hospitality of others to take them in, to feed them, to care for them. Jesus knows that what he's asking the disciples to do is hard work, work that will at times lead to their rejection and disappointments. And so he doesn't send them out alone, but together. And that's a fundamental truth about our own existence, isn't it? That we know we are better 
together. That's what it means to be the body of Christ in this place, the body of Christ with many members. It's why we come to this place week after week. It would certainly be possible and probably even easier to sit at home by ourselves. You could pull up the Bible on your phone or even stream a sermon on TV. But it misses the point because we need each other. Language lesson number two of the day, the Greek word the New Testament uses for church, ekklesia, actually means assembly, as in more than just one person and probably a lot more than just one person. All of us who are here, the assembly, the community of God. And if Naaman's story teaches us something else, it's that the community that we need is going to include the people that we least expect. And that might even make us uncomfortable for a while. Naaman's community included a slave girl from a foreign land, anonymous servants who don't get named, and a foreign prophet. The disciples' community would include people who reject them, Ours might include people who disagree with us or who look or believe differently than us. But community can also include the people who heal us, who make us whole and offer us hospitality and challenge us to grow and become the beloved community that God wants us to be. All of these members of the community are important. The community that God calls us into is going to include people that we don't expect, people that we least expect to be there, people that we might even think shouldn't be there. And that's going to make us uncomfortable. And in that discomfort, it would be really easy to just pack up and leave, to push the Jordan aside and Naaman just goes back off home to the rivers of Damascus. It would be really easy to pick up and leave the house of the person who rejects you. It would be really easy to pick up and leave when conflict brews or when something doesn't quite go our way or meet our expectations. But Jesus says, don't move about from house to house. Don't be so quickly to leave. Stick around See what happens. And so I think taking notice of people who are different than us, people that we don't think should be there, but letting down our guard just a little bit, allowing ourselves to glimpse God's grace in unexpected people and places can also lead to some very beautiful, life-giving moments. Like the Sunday about a year ago, when I was still living in Chicago, that I was certain that I was going to be late for the, uh, for the church for, uh, where I was guest preaching that day. It was way out in the suburbs of Chicago. I was still living in the city. It was the perfect storm kind of morning, the kind of morning maybe you can relate where you hit the snooze button one too many times, and then you scramble to get ready and get all the things done before you go out the door, and then you sit in Chicago traffic, because Chicago traffic knows no day of the week or time of the day, uh, and just filled with this hurry and worry and anxiety about 
if I was going to make it on time, and just this sense of I'm going to fail, I'm going to let these people down, I'm going to be late. Well, I did make it with time to spare, but that didn't affect my attitude. I was never fully present in that service from start to end. And so as I'm there, even at the very end, greeting people at the door, saying hello to them, just thinking, oh my gosh, I made it, like, this is over. I'm standing there, and out of nowhere, I don't even see him coming. All I feel is like, this, there's this little kid who's coming up, maybe like five or six, and he just like rushes up to me, and I just feel his arms like wrap around my legs and just give me a hug. And that, in that moment, was like the best thing ever. That was the experience of grace and healing that I needed that morning to pull me out of my own stuff and back into that moment. And all from somebody that I least expected, someone I couldn't even see because he's like down here and my eyes are up here, Uh, but a beautiful moment, a moment that pulled me back to where I needed to be. And maybe that's not as dramatic of a healing story as what we get from Second Kings with generals and prophets and rivers, but I think it can teach us a similar lesson. In Naaman's case, he needed a dose of humility to have his pride and his expectations taken down a few levels. This wasn't going to happen on his terms, no matter how hard he might try. But the results were profound not just a healing miracle, but a story that ends with an experience of grace and a confession of faith. He realized that he needed his community, all of his community, in order to be fully healed and cured. Even Elisha couldn't be a prophet without Elijah's mentoring and a double share of his predecessor's spirits. He needed his community, too, in order to be the prophet and the healer among his people that he was called to be. And we, too, need our community, maybe in those surprise hugs that come to us from out of nowhere, and certainly in other ways, too. But I'm willing to bet almost always in ways that we never see coming and from the people that we least expect. Thanks be to God.